Good evening and welcome to the penultimate session of uh, public discussions as part of Watch This Space, an exhibition that's been running on till the 11th, curated by me. My name is Anjana Hattoto, I'm the editor of Ground Views and curator of this exhibition in collaboration with Artraker. Ian, I've lost you again. Okay, Ian. Ian is from Artraker and uh, it's an organization based in England that we have collaborated with to bring you the art that is on the walls, which I encourage you, if you haven't already, to please take a look. There are catalogues over on that corner. In addition to this kind of public uh, uh, discussion and the art around us, there is also, as an integral part of the exhibition, theater and the details of Forgetting November by the Floating Space Theater Company is up on a placard, a poster at the back of the room and I encourage you to come see the play. It will not be held during these days. It will be held, if I'm not mistaken, on the 26th, 27th, 29th, and 30th, but the dates are, dates are up there, and the venue will also be at the Harold Pierce Gallery at the Lionel Went. Um, the discussions every day have focused on, broadly speaking, transitional justice and what on earth that means in layman's terms. It has address the issue, address that problem, address that framework or definition or praxis through uh, a number of ways. On the opening night, there was Radhika Kumaraswamy giving an amazing uh, keynote address, framing the whole uh, issue of remembering, memorialization, uh, and the challenges thereof. After that, there was media and transitional justice, a panel I chaired, uh, a moderated rather, um, then there was a keynote by Thissa, who's in the audience, uh, and Bangisa, who responded, uh, looking again at the, the sites of violence and how you choose to remember and the politics thereof. Yesterday, in what was, I suppose, the most, uh, the, the most well-attended um, discussion since the opening night, we had a very interesting discussion on the, um, the art of memorialization. It's a, it was a deliberate play on words. It was both looking at uh, how you should memorialize through arts, theater, and culture, uh, and then the challenge of being an artist and engaging in this kind of project. Today, we have with us Rohan, Chulini, and Niran, uh, and it was a session that I thought was obviously of pivotal importance when you were talking about transitional justice, insofar as the dynamics between mainstream partisan party politics uh, and uh, the ideals, the aspirations, the ideas of, uh, of transitional justice and, and the, uh, their interplay. And the framing questions for today's panel are in the catalog. And in a sense, they are all anchored to the central challenge, as it were, uh, particularly timely, I suppose, because uh, day after tomorrow we'll be voting on this quite literally. Uh, how politics should, can, do, will play a role in determining our post-war future and in particular this issue of transitional justice and justice uh, uh, as an issue. Um, my, my challenge to the panelists, and we've had extensive discussions, each one of us, is to, from their own perspectives, try to address some of these questions here and basically ask the question, ask of ourselves and ask of you the question whether the politics that we will vote on on Monday and the politics that we have brought, well, grown up with irrespective of what our age has been 
is one that is conducive to addressing some of these challenges. And if not, then the, therein lies the rub. You know, how do we get out of it? How do we get out of this culture of a politic and uh, a body politic and politics that, uh, that does support some of these ideas? Uh, with that, I, as moderator, have never introduced my panelists because I think it's superfluous and unnecessary. Um, details of uh, who they are are online, should you choose to do so. Uh, we, as has been the case for the rest of the panels, will have opening remarks from each of them, after which we'll have a discussion, and then we'll open it up for Q&A with the audience. Um, with that, I would like to give the first speaker the floor, Niran Ankatar. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, let me just start off by saying uh, that it's a pleasure to, uh, to participate in this panel discussion, particularly uh, because uh, I'm seated next to um, Rohan Idrisinghe and Chulani. Rohan uh, was my guru at the, at the law faculty, uh, and, and, uh, and Chulani herself, uh, whose writings I have uh, read and enjoyed, both of them have uh, uh, you know, made a tremendous contribution to their respective fields, and, um, uh, and I'm uh, deeply honored. Um, when Asanga asked, uh, when, when Sanjana rather, <laughs> common mistake, when, when Sanjana asked me to uh, address the question of politics and transitional justice, um, he also asked me to deal with the question of Tamil politics and transitional justice. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but without defining transitional justice, just me let, just, let me just note that sort of the, the common um, definitions of transitional justice focus on, uh, on you know, truth, justice, reparations, guarantees of non-recurrence, uh, and the obligation on states to undertake these mechanisms uh, in the aftermath of either bloody conflict or very repressive and violent dictatorial rule. Uh, but if you dig a little deeper, um, I think you realize, and I will classify sort of two imperatives. I think it's possible to do it in, uh, in any number of ways, uh, to classify four or five. Uh, but, but, but I would classify two fundamental imperatives that are at the heart of transitional justice. On the one hand, let me loosely call um, what I term the human rights imperative. Uh, and that is the conversation that is focused around the rights of victims. Uh, it is also very tied to uh, the idea of fighting impunity and ending impunity. So there is a discussion about accountability, uh, about the need to hold those most responsible for crimes uh, to account, uh, to prosecute and investigate international and domestic crimes, uh, and the right to justice. So there is that one articulation on the one hand that is central to transitional justice and one is one of the imperatives that drives transitional justice. Now, of course, with uh, the fluxion of time, uh, the rights discourse around transitional justice has broadened, not just to focus on the right to justice through prosecutions and criminal prosecutions, but to also focus on the right to truth, uh, reparations, uh, and guarantees of non-recurrence, including memorialization. So on the one hand, you get this sort of very clear rights discourse. Uh, and to the credit of the human rights movement uh, that has driven this rights discourse forward, uh, these rights are now entrenched in human rights law, such that uh, to question 
the existence of these rights would be to question uh, the entire edifice of international human rights uh, and the notion of universal human rights themselves. So that's there on the one hand. And of course, then we have this other imperative that you also have in times of transition, which is the imperative to, let's loosely call it, sort of state building or nation building. Uh, and that is to build the economy, uh, to consolidate the peace, uh, to further democratization, um, and fundamentally also uh, to deal with the fundamental cleavages or the contradictions in society uh, that may have given rise to the conflict or the repression in the first place. So you have these dwelling um, imperatives uh, at the get-go. Now, early transitional justice scholarship sort of focused on the perceived uh, incongruence uh, of these two uh, imperatives and perhaps uh, the mutual exclusivity. Others would term it less um, strongly and would say perhaps the tensions between the human rights imperative and the nation building or the state building imperative. And what we've learned over time, however, uh, is that uh, the two are not mutually exclusive, uh, that it's actually pos possible uh, to do both at the same time in a way that mutually reinforces, that, uh, in a way that one mutually reinforces uh, the other. Uh, and that's where I think the issue of a comparative experience is really useful. Uh, I don't think it's useful to look to Argentina and Chile to, to look to how their models and mechanisms could be um, replicated in Sri Lanka. Uh, but I think it is useful uh, to look at comparative experience to try to understand how those societies navigated the perceived tensions between the human rights imperative on the one hand and the state and nation building imperative on the other. Uh, and what you learn from looking at those experiences is that some of these countries have done both exceedingly well. Uh, so if you look at Latin America, all those countries that came out of the uh, brutal experiences of repression um, have gone on to be fairly successful, coherent uh, states uh, with, uh, with you know, good and strong economies. Uh, but they've also managed to engage in trials. They've managed to document crimes. They've managed um, to have truth commissions. They've managed to provide some form of solace and closure uh, to victims. Uh, and so you do realize that it's possible to do both. At least we have quite a few examples of countries that have, over time, managed to marry the two. And you look at other countries like Spain, for instance, or Japan, uh, that haven't done the human rights work that is central to transitional justice, that haven't prosecuted uh, the, 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 cri the comfort women, for in uh, the, the crimes relating to the use of comfort women, for instance, or the Franco-era crimes. Um, and what you realize that in those countries, the, the conflict, uh, and in, in Japan, you know, the issue of comfort women dominates politics in that country. Uh, it is a divisive issue. Uh, that, uh, that tears apart at the fabric of society. I was having a chat recently with a, with a Spanish prosecutor, Carlos uh, Castrana, uh, and he was telling me about how the civil war still dominates every election in Spain, such that society seems to be still split on very much the same lines that split Spain during the civil war. 
And the question, therefore, that I think that we have to face up with is, do we still want to be arguing about um, the body count uh, in 2009, in 2050? Do we still want to be arguing about the, the, the responsibility of military commanders? Uh, do we still want to be arguing about how many um, you know, hospitals uh, and civilian dwellings were hit? And I think not. And if, and if that's not the case, then I think we have to realize that we have to deal with the past. Now, how does this link um, to uh, politics? How is it possible to marry the two? And I think the countries that have done this successfully have focused on a couple of things. One is that they've sequenced the mechanisms and they've sequenced the focus on, on justice and nation building in a way that has allowed them to do both without uh, loving one to cannibalize the other. Uh, so in Argentina, just for an example, um, in the early years of the transition when trials appeared to be impossible, there were truth commissions uh, that had the effect of undermining the trust of the populace in the military such that prosecutions that would have been impossible in the early years of the transition later became possible because of the work of the Truth Commission. And you see lots of examples of this sort of, of sequencing. But what sequencing posits, or what that, what, what that idea of sequencing these mechanisms posits, is that you can't make 100% or perfect progress on each of these at the same time. Uh, you have to learn to incrementally move each of these imperatives in a way that is designed to maximize progress on both. And so with that in mind, I would identify a couple of responsibilities that politicians have in times of transition and in dealing with transitional justice. The first is to manage the expectations of victims. Yes, there is a right to justice. No, not every perpetrator will be prosecuted. And that's why we have this notion of those most responsible bearing responsibility, uh, criminal responsibility, because you know that in a time of mass atrocity or in a time of repression, there are thousands of potential perpetrators uh, and very little capacity for prosecutions, often not more than a dozen. So you manage expectations of victims. Uh, but you also advance those interests incrementally, even if you are not advancing perfect justice or perfect nation or state building. Now, Sanjana asked me to try to apply some of these lessons to Tamil politics. And if you do, what you realize is that those engaging in what Jose Zalekett called the ethics of responsibility, seeking to advance one's interests relentlessly but responsibly, seeking to live with real-life restrictions, um, seeking to be courageous not in, you know, setting up a perfect notion of justice and refusing to compromise uh, on anything weaker, but being courageous in being willing to take responsibility for your own pragmatic decisions. And if that's the ethic we undertake, and I, I do see in Tamil politics a few uh, who are seeking to live out that kind of politics, those are, those are the people who are then labeled as, as sellouts or, or, or traitors, uh, and instead, there is an alternate brand 
uh, of uh, uh, an alternate vision, an alternate strategy uh, that appears to be emerging. And this strategy is one of setting the bar so high and unrealistically that any progress with respect to either the human rights imperative through sequencing or, 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 or through an ethic of responsibility um, is impossible. Uh, where, where that sort of action is considered um, impermissible. And you have this setting up of, of a very high expectations. Victims are then taught to demand nothing more than perfect justice, which is impossible. And in the process, there is an attempt to seek to divorce oneself from responsibility for what happens on the ground. Because if you don't get involved in the dirty politics of making compromises, of advancing one's own interest responsibly to the maximum extent possible on that day, then you don't take responsibility for anything that happens because you stand outside of the sphere of everyday politics. Uh, and that, I think, is one of the dangers that Tamil politics faces. Of course, the equivalent danger is the danger that Tamil... That, that, uh, is, is the call that Tamil politicians are called on to make, and that is to give up the human rights imperative. Because the human rights imperative is either too dangerous uh, or, too, uh, or, or too sensitive uh, for the southern polity uh, to address. Uh, and I think, uh, for, for me, um, from my perspective, I, I think the responsibility of politicians is to be relentless in the pursuit of justice and truth for victims, to sniff out opportunities even when they don't exist, uh, to pursue them in the darkest corners and recesses uh, of world politics, if possible, but also to do so responsibly to the maximum extent possible on a day-to-day -day basis. And, um, and that, to me, is a real contest in Tamil politics that we are seeing played out. Uh, we may have some indication uh, of uh, how that is heading on the 17th. Thank you. Thank you, Niran. Uh, Chulini, would you like to uh, follow up? It's on, I think. Yeah, thanks, Anjana, and good evening. And so maybe I'll actually take off uh, from where Niran stopped in terms of Tamil politics. Um, and make a few points about gender and transitional justice, yes, yeah. which is what Sanjana wanted me to talk about. So I want to start by saying that perhaps one of the most significant challenges to the post-war Sri Lankan state in terms of truth, acknowledgement, and justice for past violations of human rights connected to the war have actually come from Tamil women from the North and East whose husbands sons and brothers disappeared. Uh, and I think it is this call for justice from the mothers, the wives, the daughters, supported by numerous local human rights organizations, which actually lends legitimacy to the international effort and all the other efforts that Niran is talking about, and also saves it from becoming a completely imperial project of Western liberal government that is being imposed on Sri Lanka. 
And this is a call for justice born out of pain and trauma, but also melancholia, the inability to mourn the loss of loved ones in a way that people ordinarily mourn loss, and the inability to find closure in what the state is offering them in terms of justice and reconciliation. And I think they have used every strategy that is available to keep this call for justice alive. Despite the failure of past commissions, they have engaged with local commissions of inquiry, such as the LLRC, and even when Colombo-based NGOs refused to engage with the LLRC. And now they have engaged with the Presidential Commission for the Investigation of Missing Persons. They have been out on the street protesting, and they have appealed to the international community to be interlocutors on their behalf. And they have done this despite restrictions, crackdowns, and repression, even arrest and detention of a few of their members. So what are they asking from the state, risking their own freedom? They want to know the truth of what happened to their loved ones. If they are no longer alive, they're saying, tell us where they are buried. And if they're still in detention, they're telling the government, tell us where they have been detained. And what has been the government's response to this demand? I think in the immediate aftermath of the war, the government vehemently denied all disappearances. And then they offered compensation, rupees 100,000, but on condition that the disappeared person is registered as dead. And in order to facilitate and provide a procedure to register the disappeared as dead, the government enacted an old law, the Registration of Deaths Temporary Special Provisions Act. Now, according to the government, the registration of the disappeared as dead and financial compensation for the families would serve to facilitate closure for family members. This was part of the government's policy of reconciliation, which included reconstruction of the war-affected North and East, rehabilitation and reintegration of ex-combatants, and resettlement of all internally displaced persons, the five R's, as it was called. And the government sought to facilitate this process of compensation and registrations through mobile services and distribution of forms. However, as the LLRC itself noted, despite these efforts, there were very few takers. The family members refused compensation and refused registration of, of the disappeared in the absence of truth. So I think I think this has to be seen as a moral and ethical act of resistance, which is critical for post-war reconciliation, memory, and justice. Because for close to 30 years, the state had addressed the issue of disappearances by appointing commissions of inquiry and awarding compensation. And perhaps this is the first time that family members are categorically rejecting compensation. So the second point I want to make is that even as women are at the forefront of giving testimony about disappearances, we have to recognize that women are often unwilling to talk about their own experiences of human rights violations. This is true particularly in terms of reporting sexual violence that they may have experienced. So for instance, despite various allegations of sexual violence at the battlefront, but also post-war in displacement camps and in highly militarized villages after resettlement, there are actually very few complaints. The only concrete evidence of a pattern of sexual violence by the armed forces is of sexual violence against both men and women, 
as part of torture practices in detention. And I think it's really telling that all these testimonies have been collected from survivors who are no longer living in Sri Lanka. Which I think brings a very important point uh, for transitional justice. Ambika Satkunanadan, in a recent article on ground views, refers to the huge focus on sexual violence in the context of the conflict in Sri Lanka. But as she points out, locally it is extremely challenging to document cases of sexual violence, as women fear reprisals from perpetrators, the social stigma, and they also believe that they will not obtain any redress in the end. She goes on to say that even when they share their stories most often, they do not wish these stories to be made public. The silence they maintain, particularly following the end of the war, was possibly their way of normalizing life and switching to survival mode in the militarized and repressive post-war phase. They may also maintain silence, she says, due to fear of their stories being used by the diaspora, human rights activists, and political parties, among others, in ways that they don't want it to be used. So I think the fact is that transitional justice is dependent on testimony and privileges testimony. But the issue of sexual violence really complicates this link between testimony, justice, memory, and reconciliation. I think in advocating for transitional justice and designing transitional justice processes, it is necessary to be sensitive to this fact. Conversely, transitional justice seems to have little to say about economic losses, which I think affect more, have affected more women than men, definitely in the Sri Lankan context. We know that women in the North and East face a lot of economic hardship in the post-war context due to loss of male breadwinners, but also loss of assets, jewelry, livestock, and destruction of their homes, which they are forced to rebuild with very little financial support. Debt, we know, is a huge is issue currently in the North and the East. But transitional justice discourse, both of the government, but also of other actors, seem to have little to say about the economic losses and the question of reparations for those war-related economic losses. The other point I want to make is that transitional justice is based on certain assumptions and certain distinctions and aspirations. For instance, there is an assumption that we are moving from violence to less or no violence, that we are moving from the breakdown of the rule of law to establishing the rule of law, from impunity, as Niran also pointed out, to accountability, truth, from injustice to justice. It's also based on this distinction between war-related uh, violence and ordinary violence. And the assumption here is that the magnitude of war-related violence is far above uh, ordinary violence and that the impunity for war-related violence is way above impunity for ordinary cases of violence. But again, if you look at the issue of violence against women and sexual violence in particular, I think these assumptions and distinctions seem to fall apart. And I'll just give you an example. If you look at police statistics for the last seven years in relation to rape in Sri Lanka, it's really revealing. Since 2007, the police have been receiving about 1,300 to 2,000 cases of rape complaints every year. However, barely 10% of these complaints are filed um, 
barely 10% of complaints, uh, in barely 10% of complaints are complaints filed against the perpetrator. Furthermore, the conviction rate for, for rape is between uh, zero and three persons per year. So the vast majority of cases are pending before various courts, and it would seem that impunity is in fact entrenched. Furthermore, women in many transitional justice contexts have documented how the end of war does not necessarily bring an end to violence against women. In post-conflict settings, other forms of violence emerge. And again, we are seeing this also, not just in the North and the East, but also in the South, increased forms of domestic violence, but also violence in the public sphere. So I think this raises fundamental questions about what are we transitioning from and what are we transitioning to? And this brings me to the last point I want to make, which is that women are not just victims of war. As some aspects of their experiences are empowering and can be used as a resource for healing and transformation. Conflicts and wars inevitably produce structural transformations for some women, opening up new social, economic, and political opportunities, which challenge and reframe gender hierarchies and roles. But how do you sustain these positive gender shifts in the aftermath of war? Oftentimes, the end of war signals a return to the pre-war gender regime and valiant efforts to reconstruct gender in the old way. I think one way to contribute to the consolidation of positive gains of women during war and its aftermath is to ensure women's participation and representation in post-war decision-making processes. The experience of South Africa, Rwanda, and Liberia, and many other countries provide compelling evidence how policy and legal reforms can contribute to women's empowerment. But in Sri Lanka, we know that women remain unrecognized and invisible in post-war reconstruction and reconciliation processes. And I just want to give you, maybe end with one example of local government in Sri Lanka. After the war, when elections were held for local, uh, uh, elections were held for local councils in the North and East, after many years, many women got nominations. And also women were elected. Women got nominations because there were no men who were willing to come forward. And following these elections, a number of women were elected to local councils. Uh, currently, Jaffna has the second highest number of women in local governments in Sri Lanka district-wise. But the question is, can these gains be maintained? And what does the government, but also transitional justice discourse, have to say about these issues? So I think I'm going to stop there. Thank you, Chulani. Um, Rohan, would you like to follow up with that? Uh, Shul, just give the mic. Uh, before Rohan, uh, we are, for those of you who don't know, we are recording all of these. They will be subsequently put up online. And I've encouraged the speakers, though not all of them have complied given their schedules, to give some written submissions that can go up on ground views as well in English. My idea is that all of what I get in English will also be translated into Tamil and Sinhala as well, and respectively put up on Matram and Vikalpa, which are the, uh, the equivalents of uh, ground views in Sinhala and Tamil. Um, so all of this will be online, and as and when I get written submissions from the speakers, they will be put up in English, but also subsequently translated to Sinhala and Tamil. Rohan, sorry, please. 
Thank you. Thank you, Sanjana. Um, Niran and Chulani have both spoken about issues of transitional justice, the importance of transitional justice. But what I'd like to do is to focus on the politics of it in Sri Lanka today. I have no disagreement with both Niran and Chulani uh, with respect to the importance of transitional justice, the importance of dealing with the past, issues of truth, justice, security, and reparations. But the question that I'd like to flag for discussion is why is it that even though the challenges for transitional justice in Sri Lanka seem far less complicated, as Niran suggested, than in certain countries in Latin America or in South Africa, for example, where it would have entailed vast amounts of prosecution, etc. Why is it that in Sri Lanka, it seems that in our political discourse, issues of transitional justice, dealing with the past and even dealing with the future, don't seem to be addressed by our politics and by our political parties and by our political leaders. And I suggest that this is because we are facing a much larger crisis with respect to the politics in this country. And those of us who are concerned, I think, about issues of transitional justice have got to, in addition to highlighting issues of transitional justice and lobbying for this issue to be kept on the agenda, also be mindful of the larger political and constitutional architecture that has to be addressed as well. I think the real crisis is there. Now, if you look at what went on since 2009, I think when the history of this country is written many years down the line, the period 2009 to 2015 will be looked at as a period of almost criminal irresponsibility. What happened after the war? Instead of, as in many countries in post-conflict situations, looking at the causes of the conflict, engaging in that kind of national dialogue, the soul-searching that the transitional justice literature talks about, to learn lessons and to identify possible lessons for the future, what happened in Sri Lanka was the exact opposite. We had a period of triumphalism, which then led to a period of collective amnesia, if you like, where people were not willing to talk about the means that led to the end. Suddenly, there was a, a reluctance to speak about the underlying causes of the conflict. And the irony, of course, was that just 10 years before that, there was a period during which there was widespread national discussion on the underlying causes of the conflict, the evolution of power. You remember the period 95 to 2002. And suddenly, the dominant political discourse became one of national security, territorial integrity, sovereignty, terrorism. 
And the discussion that preceded this about equality, the reality of ethnicity and how to deal with that politically and constitutionally, empowerment of marginalized groups and minorities, all that ended. And there was a complete difference in the kind of discourse. Thirdly, I'm talking about post-2009, there was paradoxically a kind of increased militarization in the North and the East, and the utterly insensitive, almost callous, abuse of emergency regulations with respect to the land that had been occupied by Tamil people. And if you go to the north and you visit people who are still in the IDP camps, they refer to the fact that their land is now occupied by the military, that there are these big high security zones, and they even talk about the fact that there, are, there is speculation that some of these camps are going to be sort of so big that they're going to have golf courses and casinos and, uh, and holiday retreats for people in the military. So the point I'm trying to make is that I hope it's not too late. Five years has gone, during which period a lot of the things that Niran and Chulani spoke about should have taken place. They did not take place, and I think we need to reflect on why. Now, the crisis, in a sense, still continues. You look at what happened this year. Okay, so there was a, a welcome change with the election in January 2015. But if you look at what happened in Parliament since then, if you look at the political discourse in the country in the last eight or nine months, there's been no serious discussion on issues of transitional justice, both with respect to dealing with the past and dealing with the future. And that's because the main political groupings in this country have concluded, and probably justifiably, that it is politically risky and politically disadvantageous to actually talk about those issues. And so if you look at the election campaign, you will find the parties virtually competing with each other to affirm their loyalty to the unitary state. If any progress has been made in the last nine months, it's not, it, not as a result of initiatives that have received widespread publicity or which have been discussed in the legislature. It is through discrete, almost secret initiatives through task forces and mechanisms within the sort of executive arm of government, but there hasn't really been any open and public debate on this. And that's the point that I'd like to highlight. It still seems to be politically too risky, taking on the military, risking the, uh, uh, reducing the power of the military. Let's wait till after the election. Yeah. So it's politically dangerous to do some of the right things with respect to transitional justice that Niran and Chulani were talking about. Now, if you look at the election, the manifesto, so, I mean, Sanjana spoke about the fact that we're about to have an election. I think it might be useful to look at the manifestos. What do the manifestos of the main political groupings say about transitional justice, reconciliation, and moving forward? Yeah? The two main political groupings seem committed 
to maximum devolution within a unitary state. We've had that for almost 20 years. It hasn't worked. There can be no more devolution within a unitary state. And probably the leadership of these two political groupings know, knows very well that there cannot be more maximum devolution within a unitary state, but they just can't afford politically to say so publicly. Truth and reconciliation is only mentioned in the JVP manifesto as far as I know. And the JVP manifesto talks about Sri Lanka consisting of various nationalities, the plural character of Sri Lankan society is recognized, but then as we all know, the JVP is totally opposed to devolution of power and I think that anyone who is familiar with the evolution of Sri Lanka's ethnic conflict knows that substantial devolution has got to be part of the solution. So I'd just like to suggest that there is a real crisis in terms of our politics. And you've seen the deterioration over the years. All you have to do is open a copy of the parliamentary Hansard from 1970s and open a Hansard from 2000, and you'll see the difference in the quality of the debate, the willingness to tackle difficult political issues, and it's almost as if our politics has moved from a politics of ideas and ideology to a politics of power and patronage. So we have a crisis of politics, and the transitional justice debate has to be located within that overall crisis of politics. I'd like to make one more point before I end, and that's because in Sanjana's curator's note in the booklet here, he talks about the importance of education. And obviously, what Chulani and Iran have talked about and what I've talked about, about the politics of transitional justice, has a kind of immediacy. This has to be addressed. It's already five or six years too late. It has to be addressed probably soon after the election. But the issue of education is probably a longer-term project. But I think Sanjana makes the point in his curator's note that the type of education that we have now is certainly not an education that is conducive to promoting understanding, pluralism, a system which promotes understanding the other, even if you might not agree with the other on many issues. And if you look at the pressure now, certainly within the university system, to develop courses that are market-oriented, that are employment-oriented, one fears that the departments of history, the departments of philosophy will soon be departments of the past. And we're going to have uh, you know, just courses which really do not deal with education in the broader sense of the word, and therefore try to redress or try to uh, arrest, sorry, this trend that I've talked about. The second point on education. You might recall that during the period 95 to 2000, I think it's always useful to have that period as a kind of counterpoint. There was a comprehensive attempt to deal with education, the textbooks, the school curricula, and what happened to that initiative. It was resisted by bureaucrats in the Ministry of Education, by political leaders, and finally, the whole project was sabotaged. So, if it failed then, what are the prospects 
for a serious and radical reform of the education system, both at secondary school level and at university level, likely? What are the prospects for it to succeed in 2015, 2016? So these, I think, are important issues that we need to reflect on. I've tried to suggest to you that Sanjana, that Sanjana Niran and Chulani have spoken about the ought. I'm just trying to show you the gulf between the ought and the is. A lot of work, therefore, has to be done by those of us who are committed to transitional justice to grasp whatever opportunities may emerge after the parliamentary election. All the political groupings seem to talk about fundamental constitutional reform. This might give us some sort of opportunity to address these larger political issues which have an impact on the very specific issue of transitional justice as well. And thirdly and lastly, I think we need to also do whatever we can to ensure that there is radical reform in the education sphere, bearing in mind that there are vested interests, extremely powerful vested interests, that are going to resist attempts at change as they did just 10 or 15 years ago. Thank you. Thank you, Rohan. And indeed, uh, Chulini and Niran for some fascinating uh, observations there. Um, obviously, many questions arise as a consequence of what you have mentioned. I want to pit Niran and Rohan, in a sense, against each other uh, and ask you to answer a question that I had as a consequence of something that Niran had written a while ago on ground views, actually. Uh, and you make the very interesting point, Niran, that and I'm going to quote uh, Verite, the research organization, data suggests that the 2012 UN resolution uh, was met with, which was watered down, innocuous in your words, was met with more resistance than 2014's resolution, which in a sense was stronger. And over the phone we talked about the optics and the language of Tamil politics in its resistance and also the politics of actually engaging with those resolutions in so far in light of also what you just submitted. Now, Rohan, if I may present that to you, it seems to be the case that the ease that you talked about, it was interesting for me that, oh, perhaps the question should be, what is the role, relevance and recognition of the interplay, the complex, contesting, complementary, but also sometimes divisive, highly emotive interplay between the Tamil and Sinhala uh, politics, or polity as it were, uh, in giving rise to that. You said that history would record the five years as being of criminal negligence or criminal, um, uh, criminal uh, uh, ignoring criminally what should have been done. Rohan, if you were asked whether the triumphalism and the the nature of what happened after 2009 could have been any different, would you honestly say, given the what is, that it could have been? Yeah, and to kind of, if you, are, if you, if you get the question I'm asking, Rohan, from you, the, the interplay and how it plays out in defining the is and perhaps ways out, and Niran, you know, if what Rohan said is the is, how do you see Tamil polity and politics as kind of addressing that and, and getting out of this, this vicious vortex 
of a zero-sum game, yeah? Surely I have one for you as well, but I'd like to, the two of them too. Do you want to go first? I'd yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. I, I, I think uh, there's no other way to answer this than to push back slightly um, against, um, against Rohan, uh, Rohan's submission. Uh, and that is perhaps to, to, uh, to take a cue from you to suggest that the is is actually changing. Um, so the is in 2009 uh, was an is in which I shuddered to use the word war crimes in public. Uh, and the is in 2015 uh, is, when in, uh, is one in which I'm, I'm very glad to say that, um, you know, I, I dedicate a large uh, part of my time to trying to pursue justice uh, in respect of those who committed war crimes. Uh, that, that's a fairly telling uh, shift. Uh, there's also another telling shift, uh, which is that today you have a government uh, in place uh, with whom... Um, you know, some of us have very serious uh, difficulties and problems and disagreements, uh, but who are talking publicly, now never mind whether the talk is genuine or not, uh, but who are talking publicly about prosecutions of those responsible for certain atrocity crimes like the white flag incident. Uh, for instance, the, word, uh, the words white and flag together could not have been used uh, together in, in a sentence, but now the government feels comfortable uh, talking about it. And, and I heard Rajita Sienaratne the other day saying, uh, you know, this government will not let those who uh, killed um, Serendis with white flags uh, go away scot-free. So I think, uh, and, and now the idea of a truth commission, which I remember Diane Jayatilaka opposing in the days when Vasuki Nesaya proposed it in 2010, and he said no country that has ever won a war has done a truth commission, what kind of rubbish is this? The government today um, would be, I suspect, very happy if they could get away with a truth commission and nothing else. So I think the is is changing, and a lot of that change is because uh, of the international pressure uh, that successive governments have faced, but also because of the gradual process, incremental process in Geneva, starting with a, a first resolution that asked questions, asked the Sri Lankan government to implement uh, the recommendations of the LLRC, very uh, weak recommendations. Uh, we thought, uh, at least I thought, um, to a resolution that eventually mandated uh, an international investigation, which is a very, very rare uh, event. Uh, and so the ease internationally also changed from an ease in which a 2009 Human Rights Council congratulates the Rajapaksa administration uh, for uh, its war effort to a resolution in 2014 that mandates... Uh, a very strong and powerful investigation in respect of what happened in Sri Lanka. That said, uh, what's the role of Tamil politics? And I think the, the role of Tamil politics, I mean, I won't stray too much from what I suggested previously, which is, you know, push forward that incremental progress. Um, seek it out uh, domestically, where you think it's possible domestically, seek it out internationally, where you think it's possible internationally. And I think with respect to transitional justice, I'll agree with Rohan that the, the, the situation is dire, 
Uh, it is not great. It certainly doesn't look perfect, but then what country has had a perfect transitional justice system, or where has it ever uh, looked perfect? But, but, and it is. It's terrible. We rail against it, and I would. Uh, but it's a lot better than it was in 2009. You have a short uh, Thanks. Well, I hope Niran is right and I'm wrong. <laughs> um, and that the is, is has changed and is changing. But I must say, I'm probably a little more pessimistic than Iran is. I'm prepared to, to concede his point about dealing with the past, but my interest, obviously, is a little bit more focused on the future. And there, I'm not so sure that the is is changing for the better, but rather for the worse. And I'm struck by the fact that now, as opposed to say 10 or 15 years ago, one cannot talk about federalism, one cannot talk about uh, uh, devolution and uh, the country having multiple identities and nationalities and things like that. So, um, so let's, let's see, and I'm really worried that uh, um, that if there's an opportunity for substantial constitutional reform, so, and given the makeup of the two main political groupings where everything is a little confused given the fact that personality politics seems to have sort of facilitated the, the various parties coming together, it's going to be very difficult for either of the two main political groupings to move forward on constitutional reform with specific reference to the ethnic conflict. Rohan, I, I did want you to address, in the architecture of that which you speak about, I wanted you to address, if you will, um, also the interplay between not just the two main political groupings, but the Tamil and, and singular, yeah. simplistic group. You know. Yeah, no, there I think I agree with Niran. There, what is worrying is uh, Tamil politics, obviously, the, the fact that the TNA seems to be taking a far more moderate, uh, conciliatory role and therefore is exposing themselves to attack uh, from the hardliners uh, in the form of the independent group and also Gajan uh, Ponamblam's party. Um, and here, of course, too, I think it, it, you'll, have, you'll have a similar development if any party talks about uh, meaningful devolution of power. And so I'm really concerned uh, about some of the rhetoric, especially of the chief minister, uh, who doesn't seem too concerned about really uh, uh, making the provincial council function effectively, but is engaged in a, a larger political project, which is obviously entitled to do, but I don't think it's really going to help. And so um, if you look at uh, what's happening, uh, the sort of radicalization uh, among the within the Tamil community, and, uh, and the fact that the Sinhalese political parties for various political reasons are just unwilling to be uh, creative and progressive in terms of constitutional reform, the prospects for dealing with the future, untying the future as you call it, uh, look, look quite bleak in my view. Thank you. Uh, Chulini, I had, I mean, this is also linked to what we talked about over the phone in preparation, and this point that really struck me was uh, I'm putting words that you told me in a different way, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that the mothers of the disappeared in the north and the east have really emerged as a political force to be reckoned with, yeah? Uh, and you made a contradistinction between 
the Bishana Yuga and the uh, the mothers' movements that uh, arose as a consequence of the thousands being disappeared, extrajudicially killed at the time, and the kind of movements that we have today. The obvious question, I suppose, is what is the difference? What changed? I would submit to you that common sense would have it that the Bishanyuga and the mothers in the south would have more political traction than some marginal, peripheral, erased and always forgotten uh, 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 imagination in a sense, uh, or if you look at it geographically, part of the country in the north and the east. What has changed? Why has the north and the east and the mothers of the disappeared emerged today as a political force? And as a, as a, as a follow-on question, what does it portend to have that degree of their involvement uh, in what we are talking about and, and how will that play out yeah um, it's on. I, mean, I think it's contingent on a lot of things i mean obviously um i would argue actually that the llrc uh is what first mobilized these women to come before the llrc and give testimony and up to that point, and they did so with the support of local women's organizations who brought them together. And I think coming together in that way really uh, gave us a sense of the magnitude of the problem uh, that not just one, two, three, but it seemed as if thousands of women shared. Almost ironic because LRC didn't have a single woman. No, it, uh, it, it did. did have one. Okay, yeah, one. Okay. it did have one. But ironic also because I think. I mean, many of us here have critiqued the LLRC as a, a kind of state performance par excellence. And I think what is really interesting is that these women, I would argue, subverted that space uh, and reclaimed it to give testimony about disappearances. Um, and I think that has had its own dynamic in a way, because then, then that uh, then led to the appointment of a, a commission uh, for missing persons to exclusively uh, receive complaints of disappearances. And in a way, the registration of deaths ordinance, I would say by rejecting it, they also uh, made a very strong stand against what the state was trying to do because the act in a way could be read as uh, trying to bury the whole issue of disappearances uh, and pass these people off as dead. Uh, but I think the, the international support has been important uh, because otherwise uh, these women could have been uh, uh, faced far more threats and repression that they have already received. Um, the fact that there is no war is clearly also uh, uh, allowed them to, you know, uh, continue their protests, etc. I mean, I want to make a point about the Mother's Front of the 90s. Uh, don't forget, they also changed the government. Uh, well, they contributed to changing the government and bringing in uh, the 94 uh, government of Chandrika uh, Bandaranaga Kumaratunga. And I think there's a fundamental difference. In a way, um, those mothers took compensation at the end of the day. But I think you could also argue that those commissions of inquiry did function as truth commissions to some extent because they did document 
meticulously uh, disappearances. They documented in a number of cases who was responsible for these disappearances. They named perpetrators. They had license plate numbers of people, uh, you know, uh, vehicles that had taken some of these people away. But ultimately, I guess you could argue that they were kind of co-opted to the uh, Sinhala Buddhist nationalism at the end of the day because uh, prosecution of many of these perpetrators were not possible in a context where the government was still uh, fighting a war against the LTTE. So, um, yeah, I, I think even though those mothers took compensation, perhaps you could argue that there was some kind of truth and reconciliation along the way. The, 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 the obvious question is, given the what is that Rohan also articulated, uh, isn't there you feel a tension between the expectations of these women and what you have written about so powerfully and repeatedly, which is around the, the, the incredible gap of the representation of their voices in power. On the one hand, you have these expectations around not just the individuals, but the processes and, and expectations around redress and justice. On the other hand, you have, for want of a better term, the male gaze, the same parochialism, the same, the same, the same political architectures that gave rise to the issue in the first instance. So how do you see that tension playing out? Um, I, so I guess the other issue is um, at the end of wars, people are not just asking for transitional justice, but people are also asking for the restructuring of the state. Um, and, and that has happened in many contexts. In South Africa, you not only did have a, a TRC, but you had a whole constitutional reform process. Uh, you had a gender equality commission which was set up. You had quotas for women, and so was the case in many other countries. So, um, especially if you're talking about um, equality across the board, not just for minorities, but for women and other identity groups, I think we need to be talking beyond transitional justice to questions of uh, how do we reform the state and constitutional reform and devolution of power, etc. I had one question before opening it up to the floor uh, from Niran. I think yesterday or day before the Prime Minister, it could be yesterday actually, the Prime Minister of Japan offered what was a very interesting apology of sorts. It wasn't to the degree that was expected of Japan 70 years after what happened, but it was a, a recognition that Japan had erred in its ways. And there was always, as, as also I think Rohan mentioned this, or perhaps you, uh, this, this desire to see a full apology and yet the inability of those in power to give that apology because it would mean so many other things. How does the politics of apology and the politics of justice play against each other in your mind around and in transitional justice, particularly from Tamil polity? Yeah, that's, that, thanks for that. That's a, that's a really interesting uh, question. You know, something interesting happened in 2009 uh, that hadn't happened uh, previously, which is that the demand for justice and truth 
couched in the terminology of transitional justice, um, was introduced and politicized within the Tamil polity in a way that had previously not happened. Uh, so, uh, in the ceasefire, in the sort of early 2000s, um, you had very little conversation about victims' right to truth, right to justice. Uh, there was uh, no conversation, unlike many of the other conversations around the world where you, have, uh, where you have bilateral peace negotiations, there's often a conversation about a truth commission and a tribunal uh, on the table, such as the one you have in Colombia right now. You didn't have that on the table uh, in Sri Lanka. And, that, and, 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 that, and a part of that reason is because we're part of the Indian subcontinent, uh, where the diffusion of the transitional justice idea is very, very weak much weaker than in other parts of the world, certainly uh, weaker than in Latin America uh, or in parts uh, of Africa. Now, in 2009, I think partly through, because of the fact that the LTT was no more, and therefore there was a space within Tamil politics, there was, a, there, there was security in talking about justice in a way that previously would not have existed, because I don't think the LTT would have countenanced the idea of prosecutions against their own cadres. Uh, and because of the involvement of the international community, the language of transitional justice and the language of prosecutions, the language of the right to truth and uh, the right to justice uh, began to be used. Uh, and then something interesting happened in 2011, in the local government elections in, in the North, uh, the issue of justice for crimes first be became a political issue on the platform, on the election platform, and continues to this day. I mean, um, you know, I've just come back uh, from, the uh, from, from Jaffna where, you know, the political solution is obviously the number one conversation. The number two conversation is the question of justice uh, and truth. Uh, and transitional justice, as we term it, the same word isn't used because it's very clunky in Tamil, but the question, you know, nidhi and nunme and truth and justice. Um, so, in that context, uh, I think the question of apology becomes... Uh, is, is probably going to be seen as inadequate. Um, and um, that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. Uh, some of us have been within the Tamil polity or Tamil broader sort of Tamil speaking community uh, been trying to uh, encourage uh, the political leaders um, on the Tamil side uh, to express some remorse and responsibility uh, for the violence committed in the name of uh, Tamil people. Uh, and some of that has happened. Uh, but I don't think it uh, subsumes or adequately addresses the other questions uh, of truth and justice, reparations and guarantees of non-recurrence. Thank you very much. Uh, we can open up the, uh, qu uh, the, uh, the questions to the audience. There are two mics. Again, may I please remind you these are being recorded, so please speak to the mic because we want to capture the question as well. Please raise your hand and the floor is yours, actually. Ian. Thank you. Um, it's a very interesting opposition here. Two of you speaking about politics in the sense of formal political institutions and 
One of you speaking about politics in the sense of a social movement, of uh, something quite different outside that institutional realm. And what's striking to me from a comparative perspective is many of the cases you cited, the impetus came from initially from social movements. Um, in Argentina, it was the, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo. In South Africa, the ANC was a social and violent movement for 30 years before they found a counterpart in F.W. de Klerk who was willing to play ball with them. So if there is inertia, if there is a problem of incentives in formal institutions, should we be looking somewhere else? Um, We've heard a bit about mothers' movements. Are there other centers of, of willingness and potential momentum um, that one can look to? We'll take a few questions and then uh, get the panel to respond. There's one. <laughs> I just wanted to uh, raise an issue, really, with uh, Rohan in terms of the uh, politics and the reaction of the Tamil population in the north. Uh, currently, Vigneswaran is very, very popular because he represents the views of the majority of the Tamil people in Jaffna and in the north, in the north particularly. The difficulty we have is with the historically with the uh, Tamil politicians. In the past, they all came from the south. Not many came from the north and the east. So there was a bit of a tension between the representatives and the people of the North and East. And there was a distrust saying uh, to the effect that the representatives were really uh, not flagging up the main issues that the Tamil population want them to be represented. That's one point. Secondly, if you look back in history, on. The division, the political division or the racial division between the two communities and now the third community has been in existence since the time of SWRD when he paid, played the race card to get into office. Now, since that time, there has been, when his wife came to office, it was progress incrementally, the severity of divisions, education, jobs, uh, jobs in the public sector. And it didn't happen yesterday. It has been in existence for a very long period of time. And on top of that, we have had, had the 58 riots. Before that, I hear in 53. We have had, after that, the... Uh, I'm sorry, the, could you the, frame your question, please? Because we have limited time. Okay. Yeah, ask okay. it in the form of a question. Okay. And we have had severe uh, atrocities committed against the minority. So you're saying for us to discuss openly the issues associated with the transitional justice you're, you're implying that the Tamil population in the north are not playing ball, or they are, they are basically being moving towards radicalism. But my point is, when you have such a 
drastic history. And you have one of the main political parties continuing to play the race card and saying the bogey LTT are around. It's difficult to accept the substantial minority to change their views and accept some of these peace formulas and moderate views that you're suggesting. We'll take one more and I urge you to ask a question. So maybe think about what you want to ask and then frame it such. One at the back, Vijay. Um, thank you. Uh, I think the thank you to Niran, uh, Tulani and Rohan for uh, some very thoughtful uh, reflections and provocations. Um, I was just uh, wondering if I had two questions. One was uh, to Niran. I was just wondering in terms of the politics of apology, we did see an apology coming forth um, at least from, you know, uh, from Sumantiran and, and you know, there were clearly others also involved in terms of the Muslim question uh, and what happened uh, to the northern Muslims. Um, and that was a significant, of course, uh, because including in, in the conversation so far, um, the, the northern Muslims have remained uh, more absent than than present in, in the discourse on the war and justice, and trans, including transitional justice. Uh, but I was just wondering if, Iran, you could reflect a little bit on, on how um, that dimension in Tamil politics, the, you know, the, the experience of the northern Muslims, and the po are there possibilities, are there, have, have new possibilities emerged since that, that moment, or indeed have have those possibilities actually also shrunk in some respects? We have seen, for instance, in the East, um, very significant developments such as in some parts of Ampara, for instance, even uh, some, tam some elements of the Tamil community uh, welcoming the BBS. Uh, so in terms of uh, a transitional, in terms of a tran broadly speaking, a transitional justice process that's not necessarily state-facing, but you know one that's looking inwards as well. Uh, what prospects do you see in, in that respect? A second point that I, the question that I had which was more general uh, was whether, if you looked at the Latin American experience, one of the key things was the, was the alliance between human rights groups and the left. There was, just, there was not just a question of uh, you know, sequencing, of course there was, but there was a much larger political transformation that enabled some of this. Uh, I don't know if any of the panelists want to reflect on, obviously we know the state of the left uh, here is, is another issue, but in terms of the broader kind of politics of you know, uh, the human rights community and its, and its broader political agendas, or the lack thereof, I would say, to what extent that's a concern. Thanks, you want to take a crack before? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's always on, yeah, it's always on. Yeah, um, I think one of the things about, you know, whether the mothers are a social movement or not, I think is a question. Um, but I think some of the human rights groups working with, with the mothers of the North and the East have tried to build an alliance with the mothers of the South and perhaps failed. Because in a way, I think, uh, there is still a question of justice that is also hanging uh, for them, which is perhaps unaddressed. 
and but it has I think so far not been possible uh, to make that alliance for various reasons um, and that also goes back to the state of uh, kind of Singhala Tamil politics in this country uh, so I, I, I think the issue of justice really then depends on also the kind of resilience of these women, like the mothers in Argentina for, I think, 36 years. They're still walking around the plaza. So, I mean, how long uh, can they do this? Uh, and I think that the question of justice really depends on their resilience as well. Um, I think I'll respond to the question that was asked directly of me. Um, I may have not made myself clear, but I was focusing primarily on the state of politics in the South and the fact that it is, a, it is to me a cause of great concern that some of the constitutional and political reform issues that were talked about openly and widely in the 1990s, including moving beyond the confines of a unitary state, are not possible today. And I see that as uh, a movement backwards. And so my main criticism, I think, was with respect to the state of politics in the South. So I may not have made myself clear. My comment and so, for example, federalism cannot, no one is talking about federalism. Now it's probably politically utterly unacceptable to talk about federalism. Ranil Vikramasinghe has talked about the fact that there's no difference between un united and unitary. I mean, this is all an attempt then. Uh, I'm sure Ranil knows better, but it's, it's, it's because he sees that as an electoral liability if he were to be identified with any move beyond the confines of a unitary state. My comment about the chief minister was in response to Sanjana's question about how the interplay between Tamil politics and Sinhalese politics. And the context is that when the TNA comes up with what, in my view, is an extremely moderate proposal that Sri Lanka should consider becoming a federal uh, state, it's attacked, uh, it's used, uh, the, the, the criticism comes from the South that the TNA is extremist. That's point number one. So, so the interplay in that sense. And with respect to Chief Minister Vigneshwaran, but let's see what happens on, 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 on Monday, whether to, uh, because I, I think there are two strands of opinion. There's a very pragmatic uh, school of thought in the North where people uh, have told me, for example, that now that the LTT has gone and now there's a new political reality, there's a new political context and one has to be more realistic in terms of political demands and expectations. And I certainly agree that there might be uh, another school of thought which still wants to use the discourse of the Thimpu principle, self-determination, nationhood and things like that. My specific concern is that when the chief minister of the northern province starts talking in those terms and doesn't seem to be responding to a new political environment where actually asserting some of those horribly limited powers, and I concede that point, that are granted to the Northern Provincial Council under the 13th Amendment, and rather then starts talking about these larger 
politically sensitive, politically emotive issues, it doesn't really help. And the idea, compromise, I, I would think, and I hope you would agree, is that he does both. That he can still talk about self-determination and nationhood and that kind of thing. But at the same time, he must surely, because he's the chief minister, try to make the Northern Provincial Council function effectively. And my friends in the North are pretty frustrated that he doesn't seem to be really paying adequate attention to, to asserting some of those powers given the new political environment. So it was in that context that I made my comment. You may not agree, but I just want to clarify what I meant. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Th thanks Vijay, for, for, for two uh, very interesting questions. In fact, I wanted to opt out last because I needed time to, uh, to think about how to respond uh, to them. With regard to this politics of apology and, and Sumandran's, um, Sumandran's sort of apology to the Muslims, I, I must confess some responsibility uh, in his, uh, uh, for his absence to respond to your question directly. Uh, Sanjana had procured his attendance uh, at this event uh, and uh, I, I may have been responsible in dissuading him from leaving his electorate uh, to, to speak at Park Street Muse uh, a couple of days uh, from the election. Uh, but, I, you know, I think, I think that was significant. It, 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 was, it was a significant event, but I don't want to oversell the significance of it. Uh, because uh, I, I, think the, I think those who are doing the apologizing... And, and I'm not referring to Mr. Sumandran in, in person, uh, have a responsibility not just to apologize, but then to make good uh, on the thinking behind the apology. Uh, now, I think the Northern Provincial Council could have done something about it. Uh, that, uh, you know, if you're talking about uh, truth and justice and, and reparations, certainly criminal prosecutions is not within their ambit, uh, but, pros but, but truth, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence uh, are. Uh, are within, I mean, there is some power within Tamil politics and, and within the institutions that they control, not just the provincial council, but also the local authorities, um, to, to do something about it. Um, and I think, you know, for me, it's, there are a couple of things about that apology. I mean, the first is that the political space existed to do it. Now, Sumandran is, is pilloried by the sort of more uh, radical... Um, you know, sections of Tamil society and politics for a number of things. And uh, I was anticipating a massive backlash uh, for, for his comments on, 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 uh, on, on the Muslims uh, and, and his uh, acceptance of some responsibility on, uh, on the part of the Tamil community for that that backlash didn't come. Uh, in fact, whenever the TNA has spoken about some form of introspection in respect of crimes committed by the LTT, uh, there hasn't been that anticipated backlash. Uh, and I sometimes wonder why. Um, I think there may be a space for it that is underutilized, uh, a space that is not recognized. And I think, you know, the Tamil community, as much as a singular community, is in need of transitional justice. And uh, for precisely the reason that we need to introspect on the crimes committed uh, in our own uh, name. And, and I really look forward to the OISL report. 
um, both as an opportunity to shine a light on the state's atrocities, and they were innumerable and terrible and brutal, uh, but also as an opportunity to shine a light on the atrocities committed by the LTTE uh, within the mandate uh, of that investigation, including crimes committed against uh, their own. Um, so, so I think, you know, I, I, I think we, you know, quite apart from sort of holding the state to account and all of that, I, I also share in a selfish interest to see accountability and transitional justice um, because we want to see a more pluralistic, a more tolerant Tamil community than the one we have uh, right now. And I think that to me answers also your second question. I mean, about the, I, I, I suspect it won't satisfy uh, yourself based on the few conversations we've had. Uh, but I think the, the, the shift in politics may not be as you found in Latin America, a shift from, uh, from a right-wing dictatorship to one that is slightly more left-oriented. Uh, though when I have made that point uh, about, uh, about that in, with the hope of getting leftists within Sri Lanka to try to support transitional justice and say actually it was the left that drove it in, in Latin America, uh, the, uh, the rebuttal is often, well, the guys who pushed it in Latin America weren't really leftists, they were more the social democrat type, type sellouts. Uh, but, uh, but, 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 but I suspect that, that, that the transition may be the kind of transition that Rohan is talking about. Uh, from uh, an insular, parochial, racist, and communalist politics towards a more, uh, and uh, you know, some may shudder, a more liberal uh, politics, both within uh, Tamil politics and within uh, singular politics. There was a question up front here, and if you have any more, please. You have a mic, yeah? Please raise your hand if uh, you want to follow up. So this is with regards to disappearances. Uh, so Chulani, you mentioned that uh, the families of the disappeared that have come before the commission, and because we've been monitoring it and critiquing the commission's work, and it's also important because it's been sold as the government's solution to the disappearance problem. Uh, what we've noticed is that those, the families who come before the commission, they seek a number of things. So they, some seek for compensation, especially in the cases that are old, and they have no hope that these people may be alive. Some actually seek for answers, especially in the cases that are relatively new, and so that might translate to hope. And sometimes, because there's no other grievance mechanism that they can go to, and one that's by the government, so perceived as the people who might hold the answers. So the commission so far has been nothing more than a grievance mechanism at best. And that too, um, they've, they've been given some space to be heard, but at least in front of those who attend, because the media doesn't pick up the stories as such or the substantial suffering. Um, I think keeping the, the issue and the sensitivities in mind, and especially what Rohan said about the politics uh, related to transitional justice, when the detainee numbers are in the low thousands, and the number of complaints so far in front of the commission being at about 21,000 so far, what hope is there for the government to come, in, come out and acknowledge that, accept the mistakes, especially given the uh, 
politics and the implications of such an acknowledgement? Um, there's one up here. Me Patikant. And thank you for your participation. It was really interesting. It's a very simple question. Just to trying to make the interconnection between transitional justice and education and also cultural and language valorization between the minority within the minority communities. Can one of you or all of you address how that education, how that change in education is going to look like. Uh, it's extremely stagnant right now. It's extremely racist. It's, it's got its base in a very old system of um, educational politics. Can one of you just address how it might be envisioned on the ground and how education can become the core to furthering the idea and the ideologies behind transitional justice. Maybe a final question for the panel to ask. If not, forever hold your peace. Uh, yeah, question please. Do you think it was wise for the TNA to have not included the ex-LTTE uh, cardiers to uh, uh, participate in the electoral process. There were lots of them who have been rehabilitated, who have uh, left and accepted the unitary state. Uh, they have been debarred from participating as candidates in the election on the 17th. Does the panel think that it was wise on the part of the LTTE to debar those activists? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so three very interesting questions. Should any want to go first with, uh, you have a mic, but. Uh, it's working, right? Um, Tiagi, I think, I mean, we've sat together at the Disappearance Commission and I think I share, I've read the CPA reports and I share the critique uh, of the commission, but I think if you look at uh, the kind of complaints that are coming and what people come and say, it's very clear there are different categories, right? There are people are talking about surrenders, people are talking about people who have been taken in front of their own eyes, and then there are disappearances where nobody knows what happened. The family members don't have evidence, etc. And for me, it seems really quite clear that what we need to do is to separate these cases uh, and, and, and to categorize them as such. So, uh, so where family members have clear evidence uh, of somebody coming into their homes and taking a person away and then that person has disappeared, I mean clearly uh, I think there is then some space for us to pursue uh, justice for those cases. So, I mean, I don't know whether I'm answering your question, but that's the way I would respond to it, that uh, clearly the commission is trying to kind of, you know, obfuscate and kind of not 
really address the question of justice and and as you yourself have said, investigation into these cases might take years and years and years. But if we were to categorize and then civil society were to follow up on these, um, maybe there is some way of, you know, pursuing justice. Uh, Rohan? On education or what? Do you have nothing? Rohan? Um, just a brief responses. The one on e education. I, I wasn't necessarily confining my comment to education for transitional justice. I was, I was suggesting that one needs to focus on education in terms of um, building up a kind of environment, uh, uh, helping people to understand the complexities of the conflict. And I've been using transitional justice in a rather loose, broad sense to not only refer to dealing with the past, but dealing with the future. Um, and I was, I was struck, I'll give you an example, because I, I, I've, I've been out of the country for four years and I came back and I started teaching at the university and I've been struck when you're out for a while, sometimes you, you can feel or, or, or see the difference. Um, that many of the students, uh, in the university just have no understanding of the history of the conflict, uh, our political history. Uh, it's almost as if, uh, you, you know, one has to start, start from scratch. Uh, and, and then, you, you, you know, if you have university students who have that kind of um, inadequacy because of the secondary school education, it becomes all the more difficult for them uh, for the citizenry then of the country, especially the youth, to be able to grapple with some of the difficult questions that we spoke about, the need for reconciliation or even coexistence for that matter, and, uh, and transitional justice, constitutional reform, etc. Um, so I think a lot can be done in Sri Lanka. Uh, other examples would be, uh, I am personally also extremely concerned about the rise of religious extremism, uh, the polarization among the religious communities of this country. Um, it seems to me, again, a lost opportunity that in the school system, people are not taught about other people's religions. They only learn about their own religion. So I think a lot can be done uh, to, in the sphere of education. If you look at countries that have emerged from conflict, where they've even developed uh, textbooks for schools where people are taught different, the different histories or the perceptions of history according to different communities. We haven't begun to discuss some of those issues in Sri Lanka. But having said that, I'd just like to remind you of the point that I made. There was a fairly uh, um, well-intentioned and fairly radical project between 95 and 2000, and it was totally sabotaged, where even textbooks were changed, the gender and ethnic stereotyping was, was changed, and all that met with a tremendous amount of existence, uh, resistance. So we've got an enormous challenge there. With respect to the question of the TNA, I mean, my, I, I really can't answer your question because obviously it depends on the political uh, sort of objectives of the TNA, but I can just make this point, that given the the reality of the, of the southern politics, which I referred to in my presentation in response to your earlier question. For me, any kind of gesture 
from political parties in the North and political parties in the South to try and bridge the gulf that exists with respect to uh, you know, restructuring the state, redesigning the state, constitutional reform, I think is positive. And if the TNA thought that they had to distance themselves from the LTTE and that one of the ways of so doing would be not to grant nomination to any ex-LTTE people, then I see that as an effort at reaching out. And having said that, my concern is that the southern political groupings are not reciprocating uh, as much as they should be doing. So, so uh, while recognizing what the TNA is trying to do through some of the exams that Niran also spoke about, my concern is that the two main political groupings in the south are just not in a position to be able to reciprocate with respect to some of those gestures that the TNA made. Thank you very much, and please join me to thank uh, our panelists today. That brings a close to the session. Uh, there, is, uh, there is one tomorrow at the same time, same place on art and its integral, inextricably entwined role in pushing forward some of these debates and issues. Again, please take note of the theater that is about a week or two into the future that is going to be anchored to these same issues. All of the details of Forgetting November by the Floating Space Theatre Company are up on that uh, poster at the back. Thanks again for joining and a good night to you.